Hey guys, welcome back to the first episode of the Optimize Self podcast for 2018. Off to a good start so far. I've figured out my audio problem, so from now on, the audio should be a lot clearer, a lot crisper. Both microphones are working well. And this episode is so far my favorite episode. It is with my father, Peter Fisher, and we recorded it up in the home that he built up here in northern New South Wales. Um, which is a state of Australia around an area which is close to a town called Byron Bay. So it's quite a popular tourist destination for people that haven't heard of it. You could always look it up. Um, it's a very, very in-depth episode. It talks a lot about he, he talks a lot about his life story, his traveling around the world and what led him to want to live more of an alternative lifestyle. Um, I don't talk a lot in this, it's more about him just kind of explaining his story and I thoroughly enjoyed it, I hope you guys enjoy it as well. I'm looking forward to uh, getting a lot more episodes out this year, fine tuning a few things and if you are enjoying it so far, give me a share, give me a rating and review on iTunes, let me know what you think, I'd love some feedback so I can continually to improve the podcast so here we go. I hope you enjoy the episode of the Optimize Self podcast. How you going, Peter? Good evening. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, for people that are listening, um, I'm up here in northern New South Wales on holiday in the area and I'm at the home that I grew up in. Um, for people that don't know, I'm speaking with my father and... Um, we're up in the home that I grew up in that he built, which is in northern New South Wales, near the Byron Bay area, which is quite a, a popular area for tourism. Um, basically, this area is a very alternative part of Australia. Um, Nimbin, New South Wales, is another kind of popular town in this area, which is close to where I grew up. And my father and my mother moved up here in the mid-late 80s and um, moved to a, a community to build a, a new life away from the city of Melbourne where they grew up. Um, so yeah, we're going to get stuck into the podcast, just talking a little bit about why, why you decided to move up to this area. So um, we'll get into it, hey? We'll start off wherever you want. Okay then. Well, I... S- suppose it needs to be put in the context of my life as a um growing up in melbourne as a young a young guy working class guy left school at 15 um you know was a sharpie wasn't very aware person probably racist sexist all those things at (laughs) that time and then um, surfing was just starting to take off. This is like 1973. Um, surfing in those days was influenced by the, the hippie movement, which you know largely came out of America. 
and surfers in those days, a lot of surfers in those days had that connection to the ocean and the environment and it wasn't commercialised and um, so that's probably my introduction to a, an alternate lifestyle was through surfing and I got to meet people who lived down the um, down around Western Port Bay around Point Leo and places like that who became are all, all older than me but they became friends of mine later in life and they lived in farmhouses and surfed lived on the dole and it was for a young guy it was you know smoked dope and that sort of thing played music in bands um and for me that was a real um just what i sort of lifestyle that i wanted to pursue so that was the introduction and then um then traveling became something i wanted to do i left australia when i was 18 um in those days melbourne was seemed like a backwater in the world mm. and most of my friends were either still at school or pursuing apprenticeships or something and um my idea of my life was to, to leave australia and, and see what the world was like and have a this experience i suppose is what i was after yeah yeah and that opened the world up to me in incredible ways that i probably would never have imagined where did you end up traveling um in those days you know they weren't travelers were weren't called backpackers or anything like that it was just because a lot of people didn't do it so it was just referred to as traveling and a lot of australians went to to london as the first port of call because of the british connection to australia a lot of australians have stayed in london and didn't leave and they stayed there for a few years and worked and maybe had a few trips over the continent um but yeah that's where we started went to london my mate i traveled with willow his mum was from liverpool so we went up straight up to liverpool and stayed with relatives up there which was a, a different experience i suppose living in a um in in liverpool and these you know everything was different the houses were small the accent was really broad the food yeah. So that that for me was my first introduction to a, a really different culture. Yeah. But then you know we bought a car and went over the continent and travelled around. Uh, you know France went to Amsterdam. When we got to Amsterdam, that just was the first really mind blowing experience, I suppose. Yeah. How old were you at this time again? I just turned nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. And um, Amsterdam was just nothing existed in my world or in australia like that where you could go into a bar and the barman would roll a big three paper trumpet joint with hash <laughs> when that first happened we were thought thought we were going to be um set up to be busted or something and we just couldn't just, believe yeah completely different the, what you... um barman offering this joint sitting there drinking beer and getting blown away on this great hash and and then, you know, he, obviously he had a business going and he sold us some hash and 
but we, we went back every night. They're all in the red light district. There are all these uh, brothels, I suppose, but they're like shop fronts, class fronted shops with the um, prostitutes sitting in the window and just people shopped mm. to pick what they wanted. All that was just for a young guy. It was just um, pretty pretty different, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so of course. We used to go back to Amsterdam quite often. Yeah, not not for the prostitutes, but just for that the freedom to be able to you know coming from Australia where it was in those days it was still a real fringe group of people who smoked um, smoked weed or hash or Buddha sticks. Yeah, going to somewhere like that where it was so open and free it was it was. And this was the early seventies. This was nineteen. Start of 1976. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where'd you go from Amsterdam? Um, oh, we had this car, this English car we bought. We went into Germany and we sort of had plans to go up into Scandinavia and then we had a car accident and we decided to take the car back and sell it. Took it back to Liverpool and sold it to where we damaged from where we bought it and didn't get a lot of money back, but we bought these tickets called Eurail tickets, where you could, like, I think it was three months ticket, and you could travel anywhere in Europe on trains. So um, it was a pretty good way to get around Europe at that time. So you could go from city to city in different countries, and of course you could sleep on the train or sleep in train stations. And mm. But we end up down in in Spain, in Madrid. Met a whole lot of other people and they were telling us stories about Morocco and what Morocco was like. And some were going to Morocco and of course you hear stories and what it's like. But to me it was like going into this exotic world that I just could only think of in my imagination. Yeah. So we ended up going and catching a ferry across the Gibraltar Straits to Morocco. I met a girl on that trip, on that ferry, an American girl. Um, There's probably about 20, by the time we got to Morocco, there's probably about 20 of us who all travelled together to a town called Fez, which is an ancient walled, mud-walled city with the Medina as like a big market and donkeys running through narrow streets full of carpets and just like going into a medieval time really mm. except for the abundance of hash and um, marijuana which was called keef it was a, a, a chopped up fine grass which is smoked Moroccans traditionally smoked it in these little clay pipes yeah so yeah we smoked a lot drank a lot of sweet mint tea which is another traditional drink yeah and hung out there pretty much just wandering around the Medina Stone and just feeling really cosmic yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that that was a big for me a big change like 
felt like this is these are the type of places I I want to travel in and experience. Not not in my Western type Western type countries that like I came from. I, I wanted that different experience, I suppose. Mm. Where'd you go from there? Well, this American girl I met, she she was from. Um, She'd grown up in Saudi Arabia. Her father was uh, worked for the American government in Saudi Arabia, and she was on holiday in Spain. She was the same age as me, and she had this plan to go overland back to Saudi Arabia from Morocco, which would have entailed going through um, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Israel. Um, <clears throat> Syria and then on into um, into Saudi Arabia which to me was like this was going to be a you know this unbelievable journey so yeah we, we were pretty friendly and I said well yeah, I'll come with you and my mate Willow he he decided to go back to Europe so I went off with American girl whose name was Dorothy or Dot. So we, yeah, people were saying, "Oh no, you can't get into Algeria. The borders closed. Morocco and Algeria have been at war for years, and you just the borders shut. You can't get through." Um, but anyway, we decided to go and check it out and see whether it was true or not. And the border was open. I needed to get a visa where she didn't need to get a visa. Um, so I got a visa and crossed the border into Algeria. The first time I've actually ever been really close to a machine gun. Hmm. Guards on the Algerian side had submachine guns, pretty carefree with the way they threw them around on the counters and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, went on into Algeria and stayed the night in a town not far across the border the first night. And then went on to Algiers the next day, which is the capital. And stayed around there for a while. And we wanted to go on to Tunisia. And again, I needed a visa for Tunisia and she didn't. And my Algerian visa was only for probably not even a week. And I had to, it was almost run out and I had to wait to get a Tunisian visa. So technically I would have had to have stayed illegally in Algeria, which probably wouldn't have been a good thing to be doing. Yeah. So we decided to catch a ferry across from Algeria, across the Mediterranean to Marseille in France. So um, we did that. And by that time we were a couple. We are falling in love. And for me it was probably yeah my first real experience of that still 19 still 19 I'd had a girlfriend in, in Melbourne before I left but this was a completely different thing yeah yeah and stayed in a really not like she had more money than me I suppose so she was prepared to stay in better places and these quaint French hotels and weird bars that we sat in that I'd never experienced <laughs> and yeah, every everything 
really was so new for me and a mind-opening experience. Mm. So um, we travelled from Marseille to Florence where we stayed for, I don't know, maybe a week. That was really beautiful in Florence. Then went on... Initially we were, trying, we were going to Greece, which we ended up in Athens, but the journey, that train journey, took us through... Uh, Yugoslavia, which was still one country at that time, wasn't broken up in the Balkans war that happened there. So we would have first gone through what was Croatia. Uh, these women got on the train into our compartment and they were like something out of a movie or a book. They were like peasant women with gold teeth and headscarves and big hand, hands from working and it was again all, all these you know every day was just a brand new experience for me mm. um stayed in um <coughs> in the capital of um yugoslavia at that time and it was being a, a soviet russian satellite state i suppose it was a co sort of people say it was a semi-communist government um, and it was quite obvious everything was really different than say you know coming from Italy into Yugoslavia you could just tell you're in a different type of economy mm. um, and then we left there and then went on into Greece and you're sort of back into a, a different economy again Greece at that time was um, cheap to, to live in I suppose a lot of it was still a rural rural economy. Yeah. Um, you know, relied on tourism a lot, of, I guess, too, with the Greek islands and that. So, yeah, went to Athens, stayed there for a while, and then went to a few different islands, but ended up in Crete, which was a, um, a, a one of the bigger islands, and Crete was sort of almost like it had its own culture. Um, you know the cr people, the Cretans, very proud people. Yeah. End up down in a little village called Matala in the southern coast of Crete, and um, we pulled up in the town square and got off the bus. Got off the bus and walking around, and I hear this voice call out to me. In one of my nicknames at that time was Chitlin. <laughs> This Australian voice going, Chitlin, hey Chitlin. And it turns out to be my mate Willow, who I'd left in Morocco. And he just bumped, him, bumped into him. And he was down there in Matala in this town. I, I didn't know where he was. I thought he might have come back to Australia even. And you hadn't heard from him since you saw him last? No, not at all. And obviously this is a time of no internet, no f iPhones or anything. No. So it was quite a... Quite a... a um, more than a coincidence, I think, that he was there. Yeah. So, yeah, he sort of introduced me to Madeline, what was going on, where to drink, and, you know, there was no weed there, but there was acid, so we got some acid and took some acid. And your girlfriend was still with you? Yeah, she was with me, yeah. Uh, Madeline had this history of, back in the late 60s, of this is the, the myth, might be myth, might be true, that people 
like Jimi Hendrix had stayed there and Janis Joplin. Nice. Because there was this big headland, and in the headland, cliffs of the headland were all these caves. And people were living in the caves. And in the night time, you looked across the bay and you could see all the fight lights, like yeah, fires yeah. in the caves and things like that. And supposedly, pe- uh, freaks from the 60s established this place as a hangout for, for you know, hippies and famous people. So we, we rented a room and stayed there for a while. And then we ended up finding our own cave, not in the headland, but in another place up in the hills which looked down wasn't far from the ocean yeah we found this hot it was actually a, a tree growing out of a hole in the ground and it was like a big hollow cavern mm. and we, we climbed down the tree into this cave so we we knocked off a mattress from the room that we'd been renting and took it up there and had a bed and how long did you stay in the cave for oh i don't know probably there a couple of weeks maybe yeah and willow he he'd by this time he had a girlfriend and they lived sort of not far away around the corner in, in the another way. cave in another cave <laughs> which was on a cliff that looked down into the ocean yeah and yeah, we just walked back into the matter of a day and hang out and go to the bars and drink retsina which is a greek wine made from pine nuts or greek beer and so it was pretty cool Where'd you go after that? Well, we were running out of money, really, and I, I was being financed a bit by Dot because she had more money than me. And um, and so Dot and I made this plan that we were, were going to travel back to Australia overland and we were going to meet in Turkey, in Istanbul, in a month's time so she flew back to Saudi Arabia to get her stuff together and tell her parents what was going on because mm. she was meant to go back she had a job working in a bank Bank of America or something to finalise all that stuff and Willow and I went back to England we jumped on a series of buses and trains and headed straight back to England pretty quick trip up through Europe Got on the ferry and went across to uh, Dover, I think it was, one of those country uh, towns where there's a port. Back up to um, to um, Liverpool because we had stuff left up there. Case you know, we took all this stuff with us we didn't need when we left Australia. So yeah, it was to sort out our stuff and me to just take a pack of gear back with me to meet Dot down in Istanbul. Yeah. So I had to make a phone call to organise how we were going to meet up in Istanbul. So it took 24 hours to book a call to Saudi Arabia. 24 hours for one phone call. Yep. So I'd booked the call and had to wait 24 hours and ring at a certain time to, to make have the conversation. To make a connection with her. It was really early in the morning. I had to call her. This is obviously pre-internet and all that. Yeah, I was going to say how times have changed. So we we had this conversation and she told me her flight number and um, I was going to meet her at Istanbul Airport, flight number, day, time. So that was the plan. 
So I said goodbye to Willow, left him in Istanbul. Uh, sorry, in, in um, Liverpool. Went down to London. Booked a ticket with a company called Magic Bus. Which Magic Bus probably would have been a what it sounds like a hippie bus company that um, freaks, hippies, whatever travelled around Europe in by this time it was just a booking agent called Magic Bus and they booked independent bus owners who um, did trips either into Europe or right through to India I booked a, t a ticket from London to New Delhi in India which is like thousands and thousands of miles miles at that time journey so um, yeah the ticket enabled me to leave get on a train in London go to Dover get on a ferry get off get on a bus at Ostend in Belgium there were two English guys who had identical buses. They were smallish. I don't know what sort of buses. They were unusual-looking buses. They probably held about 30 people each. And these guys had been doing this run for a long time. They were old hands, old Asia hands, at doing, taking people through the Middle East and Central Asia and all sorts of places. Mm. So their first... Um, journey was down to Athens and most of the people on that bus went to Athens and got off in Greece there was three of us who were going on to Istanbul yep. so we went from Athens to Istanbul just three of us on this bus there were two buses because they were doing this trip together but there was only three on our bus it was pretty good, you know, I got to know the driver, he had all this amazing music, stuff I'd never, first time I heard um, Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd was on yep. that bus, some of the Stones I'd never heard, yeah, lots of new music. Mm. Got to Istanbul, Istanbul was still a bit of a hippie de destination, there was a, an area in Istanbul where there were cheap hotels and um, shops and cafes and things that catered to that that travelling hippie sort of thing. Yeah. And one of them was a f world famous shop called the Pudding Shop, where that you had you know coffee and tea and obviously puddings and things like that. So I hung out there, just stayed in a hotel around the corner. The big day came to meet Dot at the airport. Took a taxi out to the airport. In those days, Istanbul was a pretty wild, as far as road rules and that sort of stuff, there weren't really any. People just drove all over the place, horn, used the horn to negotiate yep. themselves through traffic. A lot of big American cars went out to the airport in some huge American car. I don't know what it was, a Cadillac or a Dodge or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, I went to the airport and waited for the arrivals and something was amiss and I didn't meet up with Dot. I waited ages and ages and she wasn't there. How long did you wait? All afternoon. Yeah. And I don't know whether I was in the wrong place or I don't know what happened, but so I had to take a big 
American taxi back into <laughs> Istanbul and there was no way of knowing whether she'd even left Saudi Arabia I couldn't you know to call her would have been a big you know I probably would have had to have done that eventually went back to the pudding shop and there was a guy an English guy I'd met um, and I was sitting there talking to him he was trying to console me a bit and tell me oh it'll work out okay and I looked up and there was a notice board where people put lots of notices you know meet me here and do this and do that and I saw this note on the notice board from Dot I mean it was one of, one of those coincidental things wow. again crazy this note she must have arrived the day before well I think <laughs> she, she arrived that day but we just missed each other yeah and she probably knew that I would be hanging out in a place like the pudding shop yeah because that's where it, like everyone hung out and it was a note to me and it said meet me tomorrow at the American embassy at such and such a time so I sweet so went to the American Embassy in the morning and um, I'd never been to an American Embassy before had to go through some pretty full on security stuff to get in there'd been some bombings and stuff in Istanbul at that time um, probably you know the PLO the Palestinian Liberation Organization there are a number of terrorist organizations around in Europe around that time the Red Brigades Bynum Mainhoff with a German terrorist group um, so their security was pretty probably nothing like it is today but at that time it was pretty full on anyway I met Dot in the embassy and we were reunited <laughs> that must have been a big relief after the yeah ordeal. it was it was amazing yeah yeah it was and um, we got a hotel room together and hung out and my ticket was still valid to go on and the buses hadn't hadn't left they were waiting to, they were, the drivers the guys who owned the buses were getting more passengers to do the next leg of the journey where was it going from there um, well it was still the, the plan was still to go to Delhi yep so yeah just got a ticket for Dot on the bus to Delhi and could have been a few days later that we had a the buses were full of people heading off to India overland so yeah on the bus full of people English people all freaks all, all, all freaks everyone was a freak heading off to India um, yeah a lot of English people I remember um, and went through Turkey up to Ankara, which was the capital of Turkey, which was in the north. Crossed over into Iran in the night time. I remember just this massive line of trucks. You see the lights, the red tail lights, miles and miles of trucks lined up to get across the border. Yeah. And... Um, these guys, being old hands, knew how to get through the borders quickly. They they had a couple of cases of Johnny Walker whiskey and a big pile of penthouse and Playboy magazines. 
just to bribe the uh, border security. So they security. just drive straight past, up past all the line of trucks, up straight up to the border guards. Got out, negotiated with them, handed over the goods, and then they they collect everyone's pass, take everyone's passport. The drivers go in, get everything stamped, back yep. on the bus, and off we go. Arrived in Tehran, the capital of Iran, the next morning. Hung out in in Tehran for a couple of days, and then headed started to head down to the south of Iran, which in those days most buses went through the north of Iran and crossed into Afghanistan at a crossing called Herat. Yeah. Rat was on the Afghani side, but we didn't do that. We went south, right down into the south of Iran, into the desert, and um, crossed into Pakistan. How was before you get on to the next next stage of the journey? How was Iran then? I Meaning this, this is in the late seventies. This was in nineteen seventy six. Yeah. Um, it was before the. Revolution, the Islamic Revolution that took place there in 1979. Yeah, it just seemed like a, um, the the Shah was a American puppet had been put in place in a coup back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Mm. So it was a, a puppet state of America, I suppose. So okay. it was sort of Amer- it wasn't noticeably an Islamic country there weren't women wearing you know chadors or full coverings and things like that yeah um, it seemed pretty sort of open at that time yeah so we went down through a place called Isfahan people might know that it's famous for carpets and a mosque really big mosque there and so anyway we were down in southern Iran Went went over to Pakistan or down into to pa- Pakistan. This was all really desolate desert country, um, and the border between people think of a border as just being a line on a map or through the sand or something. But the a border in those places is actually a fifty mile no man's land. You go from a, a barbed wiring fenced off outpost into no man's land which effectively no one actually owns and then you come 50 miles later to the Pakistani border which is another barbed wire enclosure type of thing yeah um, so no man's land no one actually owns it and the roads were atrocious it was just corrugated and potholed and diversions around washouts and because this, this is like a, a main route, you know, a trucking route, lots of trucks. Yeah. Transporting, there's no trains or anything like that. Goods are transported, smuggled, all sorts of things like that. Um, hot, pulled up in a small... Um, well, actually, it was the night time. When we were, by the time we got to the, the closest town to the outpost, it was night. And it was just like a tea house and thing. We woke up the guys in the tea house and they got up and made us tea. And um, 
some of us went off into the towns. A guy, you know, like this people, Pakistani guy. Oh, you want hash? Well, I can find hash. So I went off into t- these streets and these mud uh, walled buildings and got some hash and then had a smoke. And by this time it was getting really, really windy and a sandstorm blew up. And if you've ever been in a sandstorm, it just cuts into your eyes if you don't have goggles or anything mm. it just rips into you so we got a, everyone huddled up next to the buses and tried to sleep as much as they could we woke up in the morning just like covered covered in sand like <laughs> a sand drift all over us um, anyway headed off these guys they knew where they were going you know we were trying to, we were go, heading off to Afghanistan but um, we had to travel through the southern part of Pakistan. Yeah. And we got really lost, headed in the wrong direction, spent a day heading out into, I don't know where, but we ran out of water. The buses had flat tyres. So that the drivers decided to turn around. I mean, this is desert, like the sand dunes and camels and shit like that. And you have no idea where you are. Well, they were on the road, so <laughs> they decided we were going the wrong way. So I turned around and went back to where we started. And then the town wasn't far. They'd just taken the wrong turn. Oh, okay. Because we'd run out of water, we didn't know how far we were from this town. And there was this creek. So we all jumped in. The, they pulled, pulled the buses up in the creek. And we jumped out and everyone was drinking the water and... And then the, it was actually a creek that came through the town and it was polluted as shit and we really? didn't really know. And I, <coughs> not at that time, but a while later, when, by the time we got into Afghanistan, I was really, really sick with, with um, uh, not dysentery, but with diarrhoea, really, really severe diarrhoea. Wow. Um, I think I may have got it there, but... What, dysentery? No, not dysentery, just this bad diarrhoea. Yeah. Um, anyway, we end up um, getting to the Pakistani border post, which bordered with Afghanistan, uh, which is more like a military outpost. Yeah. Uh, and again, there was a no man's land thing. And, um, From the border of Pakistan into Afghanistan. Yeah. 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 And this is like the deep south of. Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's, it's quite, it's actually tribal areas, this area in Pakistan is called Baluchistan, yep. and the Baluchis are very independent people, they're tribal people, there's an independence movement there who want to be Baluchis and not Pakistanis, they're not ruled by, mm. by the central government and all that. Um, yeah, we stayed in this outpost and we had a problem. Everyone had a problem with our visas. Our visas to enter Afghanistan were all stamped with the Herat crossing, which is way up in the north. Ah. And we were in the very south. So we had to stay in this outpost while one of the dri- bus drivers got a taxi back up to one of the major towns. In um, in Pakistan to change the get a different stamp. Get a yeah. He took everyone's passport, like yeah. two busloads of people. So here we are sitting there with no passports. While he went up to change it all, 
<laughs> and one evening, myself and Dot and this English guy decided we were going to walk through this no man's land into the closest town to get something to eat. Get a into meal. Afghanistan? No, we're still in Pakistan. Okay. But we had to walk through this area that was had an um, left the outposts and came to a like a like they were sort of military guys with a sentry and a box and a place where they slept and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. And then went on into the town. And they said, yeah, go, go, go. Went and got something to eat and then we came back and it was dusk. It was just before dark. Come back to this first sentry post and these guys demand us our passports. And you'd just seen them a couple of hours yeah. before. Yeah. And we had no passports. And we are trying to explain that they'd been taken and they didn't speak English and they wouldn't let us leave. Oh, no. They made us sit down in this room and um, one guy got on the phone and spoke to someone and we are like, oh, this is... What are they going to do? They had guns. So we were just like, oh, fuck you, we're going. We got up and just walked out. And they were yelling at us and we just kept walking. Really? Was your heart pounding? Yeah, we, were, we didn't know whether they were going to shoot us or what. <laughs> and we got halfway towards the, the military outpost where we were staying. And about three jeeps came down the road towards us. From where you had come or from oh, where you from were From the military outpost. Okay. They come screaming up and this guy in civilian clothes, who's obviously an officer of some type, jumped out. They all had guns. He had a pistol yelling at us what are you doing here what are you doing you'll get shot we'll shoot you smugglers come through here you'll be shot you know um there's a curfew at this time wow we shouldn't have been there at that time yeah yeah because you know at dusk that's when all the smugglers yeah run across the border with smuggling shit into afghanistan yeah gave us a a big lecture but they actually put us in the jeeps and drove us back to the to where we were staying so you get back there and you're waiting for the for the tour guide to come back with the cat with the yeah eventually he returned you know we were there for a number of days waiting yeah yeah so um we all got our passports back and um were able to enter afghanistan uh the the guys who were driving the buses had a better uh, offer of transporting some oil workers in Iran, so they paid us out, and we made our own way through Afghanistan on local transport buses. Um, so Afghanistan was a pretty amazing country to be in. Um, Travelled through there into Af- into Pakistan, and then on into India, up into Kashmir in northern India in the Himalayas. Um, aborted our plans to travel through Southeast Asia and pretty much came directly back to Australia. How long were you in India for then? Um, maybe a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got back to Australia? Yeah, came back to Australia, back to Melbourne where I'd left, where I'd grown up and it was after the experience I'd had and it was like everyone hadn't changed and I'd changed profoundly. Mm. So it was a bit of a shock, a bit of a cultural shock to come back to that world. 
Um, yeah, he had a series of jobs in factories and had to make money. Just not very exciting jobs. Pretty unsettled. Um, eventually, Dot and I decided to hitchhike to Western Australia. Uh, we got to Adelaide and then decided not to keep going and hitchhiked around Victoria a bit. Ended up in a town called Beechworth in northeast Victoria. And there were people living there that I knew from Melbourne who were, you know, um, hippies, I guess. So living in the country, working in a mental hospital in this town, employed a lot of people. How old were you now? I was still 19. Okay, I yeah. hadn't turned 20. Yeah. Um, so we settled in that town and it was really our first experience of country living and that's where the seed was sown, I suppose, to pursue a, a lifestyle living in the country. That whole return to the earth movement was... What is the return to the earth movement? Can I think it's, that? it's a term used that, that came out of America that people were didn't want to live in the cities. They wanted a simpler life, a rural lifestyle like our forefathers lived, I suppose, which yeah. was... Um, you know, living on the land, I mean, it was an ideal. I suppose the people who still practice that are the Amish in America who they, they do everything by hand, use horses. Yeah. It was it was that ideal, but the reality of that for urban people was a bit of a a shock yeah. in a way that we're, we're never brought up in a culture that practiced that. Um, but anyway, this rural lifestyle that we were living was an inspiration and there were people there who were wanting to pool money and buy a, a big bit of land up in Ballingen in northern New South Wales near Coffs Harbour. So Dot and I decided to be in on that. So we worked for nearly two years saving our share for the land. Um, and then by the time we had enough money for our share, we were... Itchy, had itchy feet and we wanted to travel again so we, we headed off overseas again um, consequently we split up when didn't, we were in India didn't you get married? You yeah we got married that's right we got married we, how old were you when you married her? we both just turned 20 20? yeah okay and that was partly so we could visa problems she was an American so um, so we could stay together yeah, and we got got married with a, a couple who were going to buy in on the land up in Ballingen. They were an Australian girl and an American guy, so they were in the same boat as us with wanting to stay together. So we had a double wedding <laughs> in the forest, hippie wedding. Um, so then you went back to India together and travelled, spent yep. your money you had saved yep. on a deposit yep. for a deposit. Yeah, and then you ended up separating in India. That's right. Yeah. What did you do then? Oh, I went on to Europe. I was a bit, um, a bit lost, I suppose. Came back to Australia and um, moved into a house in Melbourne with some of the people who who previously lived in the country. They'd moved back to the city. And um, Monique, your mother, was living in this house. And eventually we got together and formed a relationship and time went on and we had two children you and your sister Rachel yeah 
Um, we left Melbourne and moved back to Beechworth. That's where Monique came from. She was a local who grew up there. Yeah. And um, we bought a, a block, town block, half an acre in town. And we were going to build a house in Beechworth. Monique's brother was a builder at the time. He had selling a lot of recycled big timbers he bought up from Melbourne and there was quite a movement in Beechworth, people, owner builders. Not so much the return to earth movement, but a lot of people doing a, a smaller scale on smaller blocks of land, building their own houses. And So you decided to build your own place in yeah. a small country town in Victoria. What made you, and you, you just had two kids, I would have been what, like six months old? No, no, you you weren't born. I wasn't born at that point. And then, what what made you want to move back or move? Sorry, up to this area, like into the into northern New South Wales. Well, we decided to go on and have a bit of a break and come up north. And we had friends who were living at Mullumbimby doing that, which is near Byron Bay. Yeah, yeah. And they lived on a, a shared big shared bit of land, and we went and stayed with them. And. Um, we were just looking through some magazines called Grassroots. They're like alternate-type magazines in the, at that time, and there were advertisements in there for land for sale, shared, shares on communities. Yeah. And we came across <coughs> an advertisement for a community that was over near Nimbin. So we thought we'd come over and have a look at the at the community, and it was... Really, there weren't any people living here. It had only just been established. and It's pretty isolated, isn't it? Pretty back, isolated yeah. at that time. What year was this? That was 1985. Yeah. And um, we sort of had the opportunity to either go back and do what we are going to do and build or have a complete change and, and come and live up here. So we bought a share on this community which is called Lilyfield. How much did you pay for the share? We paid $10,000 for five acres. $10,000 for five acres. Yep. It's pretty good. Yep. Um, and we went, went back to Beechworth. We sold our block of land. We doubled our money in selling that. So we had enough to pay for the share and move up here and start building. So that didn't happen straight away. It was a year <coughs> later before we actually moved up here. And in that time, you were born. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved up here in 86 then, for good. Yeah. And tell us a bit about how it was when you first got here, because it's not like you came here and you have a, you had a house to live in. No. Um, I'd come up for about three months by myself and, and um, to get us things established I had a whole lot of timber bought up on a truck so I actually had a structure built um, and a roof on that but it wasn't livable so when you and Rochelle your sister and Monique came up we had a really big tent and we put the tent up and put a big tarp over it and I built a, a kitchen with a extended wooden floor and benches and and we lived in that while while we were building. How long did you live in a tent for? With a family? Yeah, 10 months. 10 months. Yeah. And it, it was, I know the seasons has kind of changed a little bit over the years, but 
it was quite wet up there for long periods of time up here for long periods of time back then wasn't it yeah we probably um experienced one of the wettest years six months of rain um and living in a tent was was pretty hard especially with little kids a four-year-old girl and a 10-month-old boy yeah um yeah it was really muddy and wet and um, but we were young and idealistic, so it wasn't a big deal. We didn't really think too much. You would have been 26? I just turned 30. You just turned 30, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was your attraction, you know, like to, to, to want to kind of have that more alternative lifestyle? Because now the house that you've created and the land that you've, you know, worked over the years, like it's a majority of it's self-sustainable. Um, before we talk a bit about that and what you've actually set up here, like what was your attraction to want to want to live that type, style of lifestyle? Was it because it was completely different to what you experienced or because of your traveling throughout the world a little bit kind of pushed you in that direction? Oh, I think traveling opened my, my world up. You know, like a, the world was much bigger than living in Melbourne and exposed me to a lot of different cultures and ways of living um i think i think you know when when i was initially going to buy land with my with dorothy that sort of um was the beginning of that and then as the years went on we i sort of put all that to the side i suppose and just that trip coming up here to visit our friends in Mullumbimby somehow sparked this thing that it was still attainable, that you could still do that. Yeah. And and it didn't seem that difficult because there were new communities springing up and the infrastructure was already here. There were roads put in place, there were dams. It wasn't like you went onto a virgin bit of land and had to carve it out yourself with a group of friends. Yeah, yeah. So it was, a, it was a bit more organised than probably what we would have done if we if we um, moved up to Bellingen. Yeah, because like I have memories of a kid. Like I know, you know, things change over time, obviously, and people move on, and people's opinions and ideas change over the years. But growing up, I have memories of like you know, a lot of community functions, and you know, like you know building being and building sites with other families and children playing in the dams and everything and i mean i think it was a, a really amazing way to grow up um what kind of like like ideas and concepts did this community that you you've been living on have you know when it first started when it was fresh because i know things have changed over the years and it's not how it used to be but then when you it would have been fresh and exciting yeah. What was the kind of ideas behind it and, and wanting to, to create something? Well, I think it was a diverse group of people who were here. Everyone was, you know, similar age to us. There were a lot of young kids. There was a Steiner school that was on the property. It was a private bit of land that the, the founder of the community donated to the Steiner school, but it was just a walk away for the kids to walk to school so that was an attraction for some people they came here because of the school okay. um, 
And for us, we didn't know much about Steiner education, but it seemed... I mean, I didn't know much about education full stop, but it just seemed a lot different than mainstream schooling. And that that was appealing for us, but it wasn't the reason why we came here. Mm. So you had a mix of people. Some were here for the Steiner thing. Some were here simply because it was a cheap way to, to build. And for us too, it was... Um, rather than getting a mortgage and going into debt for a long time. And that that was a thought I had for a long, you know, from when I was really young. I used to think, how will I ever afford to buy a house and pay it off? I'd mm. have to go into debt, get a mortgage. And the thought of that never, never really appealed to me. The idea of going into debt was something I avoided all my life. Mm. Um, and I always thought I would, if I was going to have a house, I was going to have to build it myself. Yeah. And and I did. And I learned a lot about building in that process. And, you know, just doing that, living on a bit of land with, on a building site, not having a lot of money, raising kids. You learn a lot about yourself and go through a lot of different experiences. Mm. Um, some people get crushed by it. They split up. It's too much because it's not an easy lifestyle. It's, it's a physical lifestyle. If you don't have a lot of money, that can be taxing yep. on, on, on your relationship. Mm. So like the the community back then, like it seemed like it, I'd say growing up here as a kid, like it seemed like it was thriving in the sense of the freedoms I had to be able to like swimming water holes and dams and creeks and just go walking through the bush for pretty much as long as I wanted. Um, like, you know, the did you have similar ideals and opinions to, to the other families that grew up here back then? You all seemed to socialise a lot more. and Yeah, there was a big social scene, you know. People went to other people's places, there'd be parties. We built a big hall, a community centre, there'd be functions on there. Mm. We'd have monthly meetings. A lot of people went to the meetings. There was a lot of interaction, a lot of participation in community life. Mm. Um, and, of course, th things change, people change, the, the whole the world changes. We used to speak of you know being here and outside like we lived in this bubble. The outside world was separate from us. Mm. But the reality is it's, it's not what happens in the outside world impacts on us, social changes, political changes, ideological changes. And people get influenced by them and their ideals die or change. Um, people leave. A lot of people left over yeah. the years with where... And a handful of other people are the remaining original people here. The, we saw the population turn over quite a lot. People came and, and left. So how does how do how do a group of people say if there's you know like fifty people that are living on the communities or a bunch of different families like what are the what are the protocols or processes in place to like look after the roads or look after the land? I mean. The, the things that happen there that 
that the community has to kind of like get together to to make sure the roads are looked after and it's well we used safe. to yeah we used to we have a like an internal rates where we pay um you know it's gone up over the years it's now a hundred dollars a month so each shareholder or family pays a hundred dollars a month and that's pooled and we allocate that to different aspects of maintaining the community some money goes to road repair and maintenance some of that goes to we have two tractors to the machinery account um, we haven't had to build any dams for a, a very long time but we do have a budget to maintain dams yeah so yeah the money's spread over a number of areas just to maintain and run the place yep. we're, we're a company so we've got to adhere to com company rule you know we have a a AGM where we allocate a secretary and a treasurer and we have share um, directors that should all just be fairly superficial just meeting the requirements of company law yeah so we we keep the place running through those structures and um, it, it fluctuates sometimes there's a flurry of activity and people get engaged other times not much happens yeah I mean the reason why I ask is because when I mention to people if you know the you know if it's in the city or wherever like I grew up on a community like people are kind of interested how it actually works because you say you grew up on a community in northern New South Wales yeah some people just think you automatically grew up on a hippie commune yeah but they don't necessarily know how it works. So a lot of people are actually interested in it because it's not just a bunch of dreadlocked hippies get mm. together and mm. it's a free-for-all. Like, like you've just explained, you have to have certain structures and um, protocols in place to make sure everything can at least run, run and operate at a level of sufficiency. Yeah. Well, this is... Lollyfield community is over 30 years old. And... Um, it's it's kept going and it hasn't collapsed it hasn't fallen into disarray it's, yeah it's, it's, in that sense it's, it's been successful but it's still here people still living here it's, it's considered to be one of the better communities around the area um i don't know why but it is um <laughs> so yeah you could say it's successful in that way if you want to say well it's not successful because we're not Mm. self-sufficient or mm. we haven't become a a community that demonstrates some form of alternate living that's as I said things have changed over time and things that were considered fringe or um, alternative for instance solar power when we first came here it was in its infancy the price of solar panels was very expensive the, the battery storage for batteries were very limited people use truck batteries and things like that nowadays solar panels are, are real um, you know how many houses do you see with solar panels it's just a, a mainstream form of energy now mm. so it's taken 30 years where people used to say to us uh, that it would never work or it's 
no one really had any idea what it was about. Yeah. And we've had solar power here for 30 years and it's been quite sufficient. Yeah. Well, let's get, let's get on that topic then of the five acres. It's five acres? Yeah. That you have here, like, it's not mains power, it's solar power. It's not mains water, it's it's tank water from, you know, you collect it from the roofs and you store it. Yeah. And also you have pump systems connected to the dams. Yeah. You have a veggie garden. You're not 100% self-sufficient in the sense that you live completely off the land because yep. that's a lot of work. But why don't you explain a little bit of actually of how it operates, like this home and, and how you do kind of use sustainable energy in a sense. Well, as I said, we've always had solar power here. Um, we used to have a fridge that ran off gas, but um, eventually um, just two 40-volt fridges became a lot more efficient, and we bought a, a just a normal fridge which runs fine off, the, off our power system. Um, we have a composting toilet. We don't have a septic where we need to use water to flush it or anything. Uh, that that needs to be emptied maybe once once a year. And is that fertilizer for the garden? Well, we don't actually put it on the food that we eat. We generally put it on the fruit trees or something like that. Okay. Um, that was considered a. a really radical idea at once composting toilets but they're all over the place now if you go to a national park they have them mm. they manufacture them out of um, plastic you can put them under an existing house um, we built our own out of bricks and um, just a basic plan that, that was floating around Pe people handed it on and or photocopied it. It was yeah, um, but at that time it was something really different. And yeah, again, you know, people will say, "Oh, that won't work," or it's it was just was a bit too far out. But now these things are just normal mm. and normalised. Mm. So um, you can't say, "Well, just because you have those things, you're alternative." The whole idea of being alternative for me is something that's got to be worked on you can't just sit back and say well because I live here or I have this or I do that that I'm alternative it's, it's a question that I ponder many times mm. what else how else does the house run then you know you've got the solar power composting toilet what kind of food like you know how much food would you be able to grow for yourself if you wanted to well, they say for a family you'd need an acre of land if you wanted to spend a lot of your time in that acre growing your own vegetables, basically. Um, it's possible, but it's a big job. You'd be there all the time, especially in this climate where things grow incredibly fast, and I'm talking about weeds. Um, you'd have to be on it all the time mm. we've got fruit trees we've got oranges limes lemons mangoes bananas some South American different South American fruits trees uh, finger limes so yeah we, they go, they're seasonal so we don't always have the same 
fruits, but citrus grow really well here. We generally have a supply of citrus for quite a long time. Yeah, it just depends what some people have been more vigorous in, in planting trees. You go to someone else's place and they'll have a whole lot more fruit trees. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no one really here who's self-sufficient though. Yeah, because yeah. I mean you you can grow you know you grow your own lettuce and tomatoes and herbs yeah. you know um, ginger and pumpkin. There's a bunch of things you've got in the garden, but it's very limited too because it takes so much work to be able to have to grow your own food. I mean you still go into town regularly and you know you go to Woolworths or yeah, Coles yeah, and you yeah. still buy yeah. things that you need. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. How do you go... So then, like, water systems, in the sense of, like, your shower and your drinking water, how is that collected? Well, I've just got a, a big 20,000-litre water tank. All of the roofs all piped into that. We've got a not just one roof. We've got a house that's got multiple roofs, and um, it's not all in one place. There's another section to the building where the bedrooms and uh, bathroom are so all that water goes downhill below the house into the tanks I've got a pump down there a petrol pump which I pump up to a header tank and then that's gravity fed back down into the house and into the shower so we don't need a, a pump to pressure the system when you turn a tap on the, the water it's got pressure from the gravity from the tank up up on the hill yeah yeah and then you've got a few dams around the area for instance if you were in a you know sometimes the droughts can kind of you know yeah happen in this area yeah you have a, a pump system set up to some dams that are closed for watering the garden or yeah you know, luckily we've got a lot of water over this side of the property there's lots of dams around we have one just down below us it's called spring dam because it's spring fed um, we've got a, another petrol pump down there and it's the same system as the fresh water we just pump from that up to a header tank on a hill and that gravity feeds back down for the garden and for the veggie garden and the taps around the house mm. for the watering the, the garden around the house yeah, yeah. Pretty good setup, I'd say. <laughs> um, I mean, growing up here, like, it is a place that, you know, it is it is kind of secluded in the sense of you're not too close to major towns, or if you are, I mean, they're a good hour drive away. Um, and I know the area of, you know, people that are listening, the area or the town called Nimbin is kind of known for its drug trade, especially marijuana. And... I know growing up here, it's hard to find work because you are so far away from major towns. Yeah. Um, many people have different ways of making money over the years and I know no illegal activity goes on these days around yourself, but I mean, how did you go about finding work and having to like raise a family, you know, in this area, which is hard when there is a high unemployment rate? There yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why don't you talk a bit about the that kind of scene within the Northern Rivers as well? Well, when we first came here in Australia, they have a social security system and it was very easy to be on social security and not have to meet very many requirements. 
So there were a lot of people living here who were on the dole, um, which, you know, people criticise that and refer to us, us at that time as dole bludgers. And some people are dole bludgers, but we, we put it to good use that time and, and been able to be supported by the government in that time to establish ourselves and establish a community. Um, I used to work with a, a builder who um, built the Steiner School and was a, a pretty good builder. He had a lot of work around the place, so he employed a lot of people at different times. I worked on the community helping other people build their houses. Um, we used to clean the school. Monica and I had a job as cleaners in the school. A lot of people grow marijuana. It's a, an area where marijuana grows well, and that probably was one of the main forms of income for people. Yeah. And it probably still is for a lot of people here. While it still remains illegal, um, it'll continue to be like that. I had a crack at that for a while, but it's um, uh, it's it's not an easy job. A lot of paranoia around it. We used to have police raids every summer. They'd come at, come over in helicopters and ground forces, and it was quite quite an intimidating experience to go through a helicopter raid. Mm. So people had their different ways of doing that growing in pots so you could pull them in and hide them under trees um, growing them in lantana which is a introduced bush which is um, prolific here people would tunnel through that and, and hollow out a, an area where they could grow but from a helicopter and as technology changed with infrared technology and satellites and you know, it was all speculation how they actually spotted things. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, yeah, so that marijuana trade was a, a big, a big thing here for a lot of people. Well, I mean, it still is. Like, yeah. for instance, I mean, growing up around it, like a lot of the other families I grew up with and children, you know, their their fathers or their parents were doing the same thing with. Yeah. You know growing it for personal use or growing it for to get their, ch their children through school yeah. you know um, it's kind of what a lot of people did do in this area and yeah. you know I know yourself it, it doesn't you haven't done it for a long long time you're an, you know you're a qualified builder you're a teacher you've got a you know a proper steady income but it is a market there's obviously a market for it and there's a need yeah, people want to buy it, and there's yeah. obviously a tourist trade in the area because yeah. it's close to Byron Bay. It, you know, yeah. Nimbin's just around the corner, so it was very. There's a very strong market for it back then, yeah. and obviously now there still is, and yeah. it's it's never going to go away. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I think growing up in this area and having that kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess, education on it, but also that. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The, you know, I was, I was shown a lot from a young age. So as I've gotten older, my, my ideas on say the war on drugs or on 
drugs in itself. I think I have a bit of a, a, a wide spectrum of, of, of different opinions from seeing how it's affected people. Because, I mean, it can affect people extremely bad, and it has. Mm. You can see, you know, people that we might have grown up with that it, it's affected very, very negatively. But mm. also, at the same time, the way things are going now, it's like, it's, it, it's nice to know that there's an area like Nimbin that is a bit of a punch in the face to the authorities that can kind of push something that needs to be legalized for the sense of, say, medicinal use. And, you know, that's what I do love about this area, though, too, is the, the kind of uh, the kickback it has against, you know, the norm. Because it, it, is, a, it is a very interesting area, and I think it's, um, it's forced a lot of change, for sure, through, throughout Australia. Yeah, yeah. I think... We left here for five years and came back. And in that time, you know, I think it was was good to go away. I think people need to get away f- from anywhere. If you're there too long, you can become stagnant and take it for granted where you live or mm. what you do. And when I came back here, I, I saw it a bit differently. And I used to think, well, I'm, I'm not someone who hangs out in Nimbin, but I'm I'm glad it's there. Yep. I'm glad Nimbin exists and it still exists just for that fact that some of those reasons you're talking about. And um, for me, it's become a bit of a a parody of itself because it's become such a tourist town and it caters to that tourist dollar and busloads of people come in from Byron Bay and a lot of the shops are just... You see it in... in any tourist spot in the world in Southeast Asia, wherever, where you can get dressed in the local gear mm. and be a, um, you know, live on a beach and wear sarongs or go to India and wear Indian clothes and hang out or go to Nimbin and buy some clothes and look like a hippie and fit into the style, hang, hang out, sit, fit into the town for a while and. and and leave just have that experience so it's it's changed from when we first came here none of that really existed yeah and it's become a bit of a not exactly a i i use the word parody but it, that it's it's a it's sort of cheapened a little bit yeah um but I'm not someone who hangs out there. I just go in there occasionally, and that, that's my take on it. But yeah. if I was someone who involved in Nimbin, I might have a completely different outlook. Yeah. So before we finish up, like you did mention before about that idea of alternative living. Um, and, you know, my idea has changed too over the years because you don't just have to live in the bush. You don't just have to live in... Byron Bay to be an alternative person or have solar power on your house like it is a way of life but also you can be an alternative hippie or whatever you want to call it and live in the middle of the city yeah I think you can yeah because obviously now like with the way information shared and what you can have on offer say through you know like the internet and and the way we share things these days you can have access to a lot and you can still live a lifestyle that is in harmony with nature, but you don't necessarily have to live in the middle of nowhere in the bush. Yeah. Yeah, I think with the advent of um, hipsterism and veganism, the, the, the people's diet has become a form of protest against um, mainstream manufactured 
food and society in a way. There's a lot of people living in the city who who have a, a, a it's an alternate idea being a vegetarian was a real fringe thing once mm. associated with hippies and that type of thing. Yeah. And look how mainstream it is, and how many young people have embraced that because it's it's a way they can show that they're they're different from this society, and uh, and that was one of the things about moving to this sort of lifestyle that we could see, you know, when I was, you know, 40 years ago, the whole corporate world, which is so mega now, was it was a similar thing back then. Mm. It's not as prolific and overarching. And people had the same feeling about nuclear power being so dangerous and corporate power being a danger and the, the politics of the time. You've only got to look back at where a lot of things were spawned from, the Vietnam protest movement. Mm. Um, there's plenty of information out there in documentaries that, 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 that sort of show that the change that happened in the world. And this is just a, a byproduct of it, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And do you see now, you know, you've lived up here for 30 years now and you've had this lifestyle and... You've raised a family, built your own place. Um, that was probably the tip of the iceberg, that movement, you know, not just you in general, but like, you know, the Return to Earth movement, the hippie movement in the America, and then it bleeds over to into Australia. And now now it's so, it's it's a lot more ingrained and, you know, there's there's more people experiencing it in the cities, in the country, wherever they want. Do you feel like, you know, like in general, it's it's, there's a bit of a, like a, a positive change that is continuing, you know, from from say the start of all of that back, you know, in the the sixties and seventies. You mean here or in in the world? In the world, and I mean in Australia in general. Um, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I mean, people have embraced those things that were fringe, and they've become normalised. But they're they're good things. They're good things that came out of that. Yeah. Um, alternate power systems were, you know, wind power. Wind power was no one could afford a wind generator back in the day. Yeah. But look at the wind generators now. Yeah. Uh, and the whole thing with um, electric cars and a whole lot of things that we sort of just think is normal came out of that. I, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're, they're positive changes that have happened. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's being older, you can look at the world and, and sort of like my parents, you know, the good old days when we were young, and look at the present world and think that it's fucked up. Yeah. Um, but there's plenty of young people who think it's fucked up too. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether it's any more fucked up now than it was when I was twenty. Yeah. Well, I guess you just uh, wait and see and keep on keeping on. Yeah, that's right. Well, I just want to say thanks for sharing your your life story and your experiences uh, throughout your journey so far. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. And um, I look forward to having you on here again soon because I know there's many other topics that we could get lost in. Yeah. So... Uh, I uh, look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Simon.